It's Two Brain Radio. Every week, we'll deliver top-shelf tactics to help you improve your fitness business and move you closer to wealth. And now, here's your host, the most interesting man in fitness, Chris Cooper. My guest today is Dr. Ryan DeBell of The Movement Fix. My favorite thing about Ryan is his propensity to ask why. So instead of just sticking to dogma, tell people that they should be squatting below parallel with their knees tracking outward over the outside of their foot, he actually says what's natural for the human body. And he combines anthropometric measures with mobility and joint stability. And we're going to get into all of that. He's also really good at kind of painting a picture in your mind. So he doesn't have to get deep into the weeds to help you understand what the difference between mobility and stability and what the optimal levels of each are. He's a great public speaker. He is one of the busiest guys traveling around and doing seminars every second weekend or maybe even every weekend. He's got about 30 booked in 2016 and you're about to find out why. Very personable dude. He's not one of these white collar academics. He is a hands-on practitioner who works with CrossFit gyms and, and coaches just like us to help assess people. He's not going to force functional movement screen down your throat. He's not going to say that you have to do a one-on-one assessment of every client before they can do CrossFit. What he's going to do is just give you helpful tools to help solve problems. And that's what this show is all about. Without any further ado, here is Dr. Ryan DeBell. All right, Dr. Ryan DeBell, welcome to Two Brain Radio. Thanks for having me on here. It's a pleasure. Uh, The pleasure's all mine, man. Why don't you tell me your story and uh, the story of the movement fix, where that came from? Yeah, so the Move It Fix is the name of my uh, brand and kind of where it came from. Well, to the the short version of the long story is that uh, my background is actually went to business school at the University of Washington. Um, and through that process, I had several internships in sort of in a corporate life and they were not appealing to me, which is why I transitioned to going into um, the healthcare industry. And for me, the thing that was most appealing was um, the kind of sports chiropractic realm. So I went to uh, chiropractic uh, school in Portland, Oregon, and I got a the DC, Doctor of Chiropractic, as well as a master's degree in uh, sport and exercise science. That's sort of my formal educational background. Mm. Uh, and then when I graduated, I uh, I realized that, well, because I had a business degree, I think I should go for it and start my own place, and uh, which is what I did. And during that process, I, uh, you know, you have to go out and <laughs> make things happen. And so I did all these live events. I emailed all the CrossFit gyms within 20 miles of my clinic since uh, CrossFit is, I had been doing CrossFit for, I guess, seven years or six years at the time that I opened my clinic. I started in uh, 2007. And so maybe five gyms responded to me out of 20, maybe less than that. <laughs> and I went and did a two hour talk there and all the gym all the gym owners thought that uh, it was something I should be charging for actually, because they thought the content was so valuable. And after the first time somebody told me that I thought nothing of it. And then the second person told me and the third person told me, and then someone asked if I could make a full day where I um, present on topics. I think it would be important for trainers to know about. And so that kind of led to the full day workshop, which is what I do now. Um, and I had some, I had some really critical success early on, which I think is why I'm doing what I'm doing now. You know, if I, if I didn't have the early ones successful, I don't know if it would have panned out actually sort of, in, sort of interesting how that happened. Um, that's where that grew out of. And then as I grew the workshops, um, I really started to put out a lot of online 
content in terms of videos and blog posts. And uh, I've been doing a podcast as well recently. And it's just been a steady growth process uh, since then. Okay. And I'll link to uh, your podcast in the show notes too, Ryan. I so, appreciate that. Yeah, my pleasure. So why is it called the movement fix? What problems are we trying to solve <laughs> with the service? Yeah, so I, it took me a long time to think of a good name, actually. <laughs> I was thinking about it for a <laughs> long time. And then I trademarked it immediately, which actually saved my butt a couple times. Um, but uh, the, I called it the movement fix because I didn't want to just call it some, you know, motor control or technique or mobility because all of those are important. And I look at movement as a whole thing and I, I, I give people what they need on the spectrum of movement, if you could call it a spectrum, in terms of, hey, some people are really, really flexible already. I have to, if I'm the movement fix, if, if that's how I start looking at things, I will not bias myself towards one offering for somebody. So if somebody's really, really flexible and my mindset is I'm the flexibility person, then I can't help that person. But if I think about, well, there's many different aspects, maybe the best thing for that person is strength. So by having it named what I named it, I think it allows me to give people what they need on that whole spectrum. That's why I named it that way, because it is more than just, there's many components to movement, and I wanted to make sure that I can encompass all of that. Okay. Are you seeing a bias toward mobility over stability? You know, a few years ago, nobody had even heard the terms before. Uh, are we doing too much now? Well, <laughs> I was just talking about this last, uh, a few days ago, actually, at a course, and I, I asked people, you know, do you think you can have too much mobility? Mm-hmm. And I think everybody would say, yes, you can have hypermobility. That's a known thing. Once somebody has enough mobility, I don't think that, you know, and if we're thinking about in terms of CrossFit or whatever sport, at some point having more doesn't help you in your sport. Because we just agreed that there's a thing called hypermobility. And once somebody has enough and they have a buffer so that they don't get into a position where they start to compromise, like say you're talking about a squat. I just want someone to be able to squat to the depth that they need to, plus a little bit, so they don't, you know, if they if they go a little bit deeper by an inch or two, they're not introducing some weird joint positioning. But once they have that, I want to develop other things. Like now we can develop your strength. Now we can develop your control. And um, I think that people really want to be very, very flexible and stretch a lot. And that's not like the terrible but I, all, a lot of times people who are already really flexible try to overstretch, overstretch, overstretch. Mm-hmm. And I think they're focusing on the wrong thing. So I think it's good that people are talking about the terms. Uh, I think that uh, the term stability could be better defined. Um, cause I think that, uh, most, I think that we say it, but we don't really know what we mean by it. Um, but I just see too many people stretch out things that shouldn't be stretched. That happens a lot. What is optimal stability then? Well, there's really two kinds of stability, in my opinion. There'd be passive stability of a joint. So if you think about the passive stability of a joint, it would be the ligaments and the capsule, the, the, the tissues that don't contract. That would be passive stability of a joint. Active stability of a joint is more controlled by the musculature. So through a range of motion, when you're at the end range of motion, the thing that limits you is the, the ligaments. 
Okay. So if somebody has lax ligaments, they have poor, you know, passive stability. But through a mid-range of motion, you're primarily being controlled by the musculature. I would call, so if, if you took stability, you divided it into active and passive stability. I would call active stability, I would just call that motor control. That's how I would call it, generally. I think it's, it just makes it a little bit easier for people to conceptualize. Um, and so I focus a lot on how people can control their body. You know, once you have a large range of motion, how well can you control the range of motion? If you have enough range of motion to do what you need, then I want to make you as strong and as controlled through that range of motion rather than trying to expand it. Once you have the sufficient amount, rather than trying to expand the boundaries. Because if your goal in life is to be healthy, be fit, do these movements that we do commonly, once you can do them with a nice range of motion, there's just... I don't know the urge to go so far beyond that. So tell me a little bit about, maybe you can give me an example of what you mean uh, controlled during the full range of motion. So say someone do, say someone is uh, doing a, a split jerk. Okay. And they have, real, they have a ton of mobility, but they don't have a lot of control. Well, when they lock it out, it'll be, instead of sticking it and planting it, that maybe their arm gets cranked back too far, you know, they can't control their arm. Or say they're doing a Turkish get-up, and they can't control the weight. Do you see what I mean? That would be what I would con consider as sort of the motor control. You could also think of motor control in the bigger sense of sort of how you use the body together in its components. Like uh, if someone rounds their back in a deadlift, but the reason they're rounding their back is because they don't know how not to round their back in a deadlift. That would be sort of motor control. So say when they lock out at the top, they let their hips sway forward. They don't know how to control their range of motion. They rely on the end of their joint to lock out. So that would be them not knowing how to control the range. Do you, I'm sure you see that all the time. You know, they stand up, push the hips really far forward, and that's where they think the end is. That's not the end. That's beyond the end of range of motion of a deadlift because they don't know how to stop themselves actively. Is that a lack of biofeedback or is that just there's no <laughs> external feedback coming from the coach? I find with those people that do that, and it's typically very flexible females that do that, in my experience, they they feel like that's the end range. Like, they feel like that's the top. Okay. So I, 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 I think they don't know what the top is supposed to feel like. Because a lot of times, the that's not, that's not the end range of motion of their joints. So it, if they continually train that and tell themselves, this is what it feels like to finish a rep, this is what it feels like to finish a rep, then when they actually get to just vertical, it feels like they're short. Right. And so they associate that that uh, feeling with uh, the end range. So I don't know, maybe they just maybe no one's taught them how to stop when they need to stop. So it's more like a, a proprioceptive learning. Yeah, exactly. It's motor learning. So are you are you making a case here for mirrors in CrossFit gyms then, Ryan? That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> I don't think that because then they're going to have their head twisted to the side while they're deadlifting and that creates its own <laughs> issue. So, um, and so will no, coach, yeah. I'm, I'm not I, – they, they just have to be watched okay. and instructed. This is where you stop. You don't need to go beyond this. Okay. And it's also good for something like the open because if you're going an extra two inches backwards every single time. But that's what I mean sort of by how well can they control – uh, the A to B. Another thing would be too, like say when someone's doing wall balls, some people just get pushed around by the wall ball when it comes off the wall. You know what I mean? Yeah, they don't yeah. meet with stiffness. They don't know how to create stiffness to meet the weight. 
And if someone's very flexible and they just train the mobility, they don't train how to create stiffness and control, then they don't know how to really use their body as effectively as, as they can. And so I, I would say um, maybe 60% of the time I'm working with somebody, it's, it's not on mobility. It's on something okay. else. So walk me through that. Um, you know, you have an athlete who just gets knocked to the ground every time they catch a wall ball and they kind of collapse in the bottom. How yeah. do you coach them to, to create that stiffness on the catch? Well, I have a, uh, a way where I, I always look at how they breathe and how they brace. What's their bracing strategy? And so, for example, I'll see if they can breathe. And a lot of people have heard of diaphragmatic breathing. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. People are told to breathe in and brace, but people interpret that differently. They will brace in a different way. Some people will brace by sort of crunching. Okay. And using the rectus abdominis muscles, the, you know, the six pack muscles essentially. Other people will do more of an expansion where they'll contract the abdominal wall more so, like on the sides. They're using their obliques. And that's sort of what's coached in the, like in a kettlebell where they do the little hiss. Mm-hmm. It's to stiffen the sides of the abdominal wall. And so I look at an athlete's ability to create that stiffness by how do they breathe in and then how do they brace once they breathe in. Once they know how to do that, and that would be like laying on their back. Once they know how to do that, then when I go put them on their feet, we can speak the same language about what we mean by breathing and bracing. And then I'll coach them or cue them on how to time it. Because when the ball hits the wall and now it's descending towards you, you should take an anticipatory breath in and brace before the ball comes in contact with you so you can meet it with uh, stiffness through your body. What effect does that have on heart rate? So are they almost doing like a Valsalva maneuver when they're catching them? It would be enough. That's the, okay. so if someone was doing a really, really heavy deadlift, I'd have them maximally brace. But when they do it in a wall ball, you just need to brace or any other sort of like a kettlebell swing, which is not going to be a max lift. I would have them brace enough, not maximally, just brace enough to not lose your positioning or to not let the ball push you around. Because why would you want to meet a wall ball with maximal tension right. when it's 14 pounds? Yeah, that would, that would mess you up. You would because you would get overly fatigued when you when you do it that way. So yeah, I wouldn't have somebody maximally do it. Just create enough stiffness. Okay. And can they learn to do that automatically without thinking about it? Like I'm thinking about this spectrum of maximal bracing, uh, doing like um, like a diaphragmatic squeeze uh-huh. versus not bracing at all and just kind of like collapsing. You know? uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, they can. So. And that question gets asked to me quite a bit. Do I have to think about this every time I'm lifting? And I say, you have to think about it until you don't have to think about it. When you learned how to type on a keyboard and someone said, write me a term paper when you're in school, you're not thinking about the content of the paper. You're thinking about where the hell are the keys. Once you learn how to type, you're not thinking about where the keys are at all. You're thinking about expressing your ideas in writing. Once someone learns those sort of, you know, it's basically where's the key on my movement keyboard to create breathing bracing. Once you know how to do it automatically, you're not even going to think about it. Mm-hmm. It'd be like, do you think about hook gripping when you're doing clean and jerks or is that just how you grip the bar now? But at first it was very awkward. So I think it's any, it's like anything, uh, anything else in that way. Once you learn how to do it, you don't think about it. It's just the normal way that you, you put things together. So when people are fixing their movement this way, uh, They've got increased cognitive load, right? They've got to think about it at first. Does exactly. that usually slow them down? It does. And and what I and so I don't try to train people how to move differently in a wad. Okay. It has to be separate. 
Because when you're going fast, when there's a clock going, when you're trying to push heavier weight, you can't learn how to move differently. Or at least it's not the best environment because you have to focus on it. It would be called the cortical learning, meaning uh, cortical would be the part of the brain where you're really trying to figure it out. And it takes conscious effort. Once you repeat it so many times, so many times, so many times, I mean, what do we, we call that muscle memory. Mm-hmm. But essentially, that's really a, um, a deeper brain movement pattern that you're incorporating where you don't have to think about it. It's sort of how you do it. So you have to think about it until you don't have to think about it. <laughs> okay. I love it. Well, let's go to the big S. Let's talk about the squat. One of your most popular articles the big of all S. time. <laughs> yeah, the big S. We're going to take a big S now. Um, yeah. One of your most popular articles of all time, uh, some interpreted as heresy. You mean not everybody squats the same? <laughs> I am amazed at how much... Uh, first of all, yeah, that article got tremendous traffic two years ago. It was, uh, it was very surprising. I, I wrote it sort of on a whim. It was just something I had been thinking about. Um, and I wrote it a little thing and I found some cool pictures of hip uh, bones and I've really expanded my own knowledge and interpretation of that over the years as I've, I've read more and more and more and more. Um, I've been reading too, like a surgical, like bone surgery, medical journal articles about this too, because they, you know, when they do a hip replacement, it was interesting how many surgeons shared that article. No kidding. Because they were like, oh, someone gets it. Kudos. Because when they go, when they go cut in there, they see it. Yeah. My wife's an operating room nurse and she tells me all the time, like, oh, you should see all the different sized femurs and how they're oriented differently and how we have to measure it. And the medical reps have all these different pieces of equipment because everyone's bones are slightly different. Um, so yeah, a lot of people thought it was sort of like fake, but, uh, <laughs> it, it, uh, it go it, it went sort of against the grain, which is why I think that happened. But I would say the opposite the the opposition has sort of softened to the idea now because it has been such a talked about thing after that article came out, and there's been a lot of other people talking about this for a very long time. But um, yeah, essentially what that's what the article said is that everyone's squat on sort of a macro scale, or when you look at them squat, it may not look identical, but fundamentally, and if you think about the squat as being a principle-based movement, the principles will remain the same, meaning I primarily want the hips to be where the motion's happening. I don't want the back to be rounding and doing all this sort of stuff when we're talking about under load or high reps. I don't care if somebody's back rounds while they're hanging out in the bottom of a squat. That's sort of normal mechanics. But if someone's doing it heavy and repetitively, I don't want the back to do a ton of moving. I want primarily the motion to be at the hips. And I want the knees to not be rotated or twisted. So I want them to track over the middle to the outside of the foot. So if someone has to toe out or go a little bit wider for those things to happen, I don't have a problem with it. In fact, many times an athlete will um, be squatting too narrow in their back rounds, and I widen their squat stance and have them toe out a little bit. Then their back doesn't round, and they aren't sacrificing anything at their knees. And I don't know why that would be a bad thing. <laughs> to me, that's only a good thing. And so that's sort of where I stand on it uh, currently. I actually am releasing an article today, which I think people will find very interesting. Perfect. And I don't know when you're going to post this uh, conversation, but the article is the real purpose of the butt wink. I love it. I which love is going it. to be, uh, it's, it's a totally different way to think about the butt wink. Can you give us just a brief overview? 
I certainly will, because the, vid- the video has already been released. Uh, <laughs> it releases ahead of time for my YouTube subscribers. So we think of the butt wink as being a rounded back. Okay. Right? Like, oh, the butt wink, that means your low, your low back is rounding. Mm-hmm. The purpose of the butt wink isn't so that your back can round. The purpose of the butt wink is to reposition or reorient the hip socket. Okay. So the, because the hip socket is on the pelvis and the pelvis is attached to the low back, if you wanted to point your hip sockets up towards the ceiling, you would have to rotate your pelvis to actually move where the hip joint is oriented. Now, it just so happens, because your pelvis is attached to your lumbar spine, your back has to round in order to reposition the hip socket. So the purpose of the butt wink isn't to round your back. That's just the side effect. The purpose is to change where your hip is pointing. So say, for example, someone runs out of hip flexion range of motion. So they've maxed out their hip joint. Well, the only way to go deeper into a squat is to move the hip joint itself. And that's really what the butt wink is. So it's not just your low back is rounding. Why is the athlete trying to reposition their hip joint? Do they not know how? Do they not have the ankle range of motion? Are they at the end of their hip range of motion? Do they need a different stance? Why are they repositioning their hip joint? It's a piece of evidence to me that they're adopting a strategy uh, that isn't moving within the hip joint. So I think that I think that will spark some interest. Now, what's interesting is that in the upper body, we reposition the shoulder socket all the time. That's called scapular motion. When you move your shoulder blade, you're repositioning the shoulder joint. But the shoulder, but the scapula, the shoulder blade isn't attached to your neck like how the the pelvis is attached to your back. So you can swing your shoulder blade around all the time, and we call that sh- normal shoulder mechanics. But because it's not attached to your neck, it doesn't make your neck do all these crazy things. So it's sort of uh, interesting if you think about it in that way. So is the butt wink always dangerous then? I don't think so. I think, you know, the butt, well, it depends on, again, how are you, when are we seeing the butt wink? If someone's doing it uh, with a really heavy load on their back and it's it's quite a lot of range of motion, then it's probably, it's something I would try to train out. Okay. I did a podcast recently um on mine with a guy named Greg Lehman, and he was he, this guy knows research like nobody knows research, and he was telling me that there were several studies done um, by some of the best researchers in the world, and they were having people do squatting and deadlifting, and they had like 10 or 20 degrees of their low back moving, Yeah, uh, which I just still can't visualize, so I'm going to have to really look at that, but <laughs> I think if someone starts standing really arched, and then their back sort of rounds back to neutral... Maybe that's what it is. Maybe they are going into rounding. I'd have to look at the, the actual article and see. I'd love to see some photos or a video of it. But um, a little bit of motion isn't always isn't like the worst thing in the world. Now, I'm when someone's lifting really heavy, I want them to be braced, right. and I want them to create stiffness in their back because I don't want them to move their back under load. But if someone's just hanging out at the bottom of a squat, I mean, look at all the people in the world when they when they relax at the bottom of a squat, their back is rounded. That's sort of normal because if if they didn't do that, then they could potentially just be right at the end of their hip range of motion and sort of hanging out on the end of their hip. And if you reposition the hip socket, then you're potentially not stressing the hip joint at that in that position quite as much. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of an idea I've been thinking about quite a bit. And, you know, I really blog for myself as much as I would like to say I blog for the readers. I, I, I like to I have to make things that I have been thinking about. Okay. And that's been on my mind for quite a while. <laughs> okay. I know um, if you look at Andy Bolton deadlifting, it looks like he's rounding his back. Uh, mm-hmm. 
he's got the world record. Uh, if you look at some of the best suited squatters in the world, uh, they don't do butt wink, but it's because the suit prevents them. Um, and, it, you know, if you visit Kenya and see kids who don't have chairs in a classroom, uh, it looks like, you know, their pelvis is tucked underneath them, and that's how they sit all day. Right. Yeah. So, it, no, the, those are interesting observations. I think that if, if, if someone wants maximal, you know, at high level sports, and, and if you look at a deadlift, um, you can actually deadlift more if you're background. Right. It's just the way it is. Why is so, that? Hmm? Why is that? I believe it changes the pulling angles to a way that makes it more mechanically advantageous. And probably because when you round your back, you're sort of tensing up, like more things are getting under tension, so it kind of creates more stiffness. Interesting. Uh, there's probably a more scientific explanation than that, but that's my understanding of it. So if you wanted to lift as much weight as possible, you can, and most people do that, they round their back on their max, right? Yeah. However, most people aren't trying to uh, break records in powerlifting. And so the way I look at it is, maybe I lift less weight, but I decrease my risk of injury. And my goal as a person is to um, feel good all the time and, you know, be healthy. And so I would do it in a different way. That So that's how I would okay. consider it. If someone's going to do these high-level things and that's that's the way that they're winning and breaking records, I'm not probably not going to try to change that very much. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, yeah, like, okay, so you, say you look in Kenya, you look at other countries and, all, and everyone sits around in this sort of butt-winked uh, position. There is an article that showed, um, and I was talking about this with Stu McGill when he was on my podcast, and we talked about when people grow up, and over many, 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 many years, they're sort of in that position, they can actually have a little bit of a thickened uh, connective tissue on their spine. So um, perhaps by doing that as a kid, they, they develop more, like almost like a little bit of a callus, I suppose. Okay. Okay. But sitting with your backgrounded, I mean, that's not... It's, it's not dangerous to do that. It's just, are you doing it under heavy load? Maybe a lot of people got weeded out who would have broken the record with their back rounded in a power lifting competition, but they got weeded out because they got hurt. And the people who don't get hurt are the ones we see. That happens a lot like in gymnastics too. The ones we see on TV are the ones who didn't get hurt. Yeah. So I think we have to take that in consideration too. If we say, is that the best way to do it or not? You know, did it, did a lot of people get weeded out? Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. But I have to think about it. Okay. So, you know, sticking with this, the belief that more is better, or maybe the dogma, um, <laughs> what I want to hear is, what's your warm-up routine? You know, how much mobility, stability work are you actually doing each time you work out? Well, it depends on the type of workout I'm doing, I guess. I've uh, Since the Open's been over, I've actually been doing a 12-week hypertrophy training program because I like to go into cycles after, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I've been doing that. That requires much less warm up because it's not like you're snatching and you have these big ranges of motion you have to hit. Mm -hmm. I, over the years, I've de-emphasized the amount of rolling out that I do on like a roller. Yeah. So maybe I do a minute total in a warm up session just to kind of, well, rolling out's a whole other topic, but I think when we roll out, we're really just getting muscles to relax. So I just do it to try to get the muscles to sort of relax in the areas where maybe they need to decrease their amount of tension. And then, you know, typically five or ten minutes. And what I do is I, I'll i roll out very short. Then I'll do a couple range of motion drills where I just try to take my joints through a full range of motion. And then after that, I'll do something to get uh, everything sort of primed up by creating muscle tension 
loading myself a little bit, and then that would lead me into the actual uh, workout. So how long does that all take? Well, maybe five or ten minutes. It doesn't take very long. But it's very pointed. It's very pointed. I don't lay on the ground and roll out for ten minutes because I could do a lot in ten minutes. For example, um, say I could do some um, mobility drills to warm up my hips and ankles, and then you could do some sort of um, loaded drill, say like a um, – well, you could do like a uh, goblet squat slowly where you really try to go smoothly through the range of motion. Then you could load up yourself with some actual weight to get yourself um, primed, you know, to turn on a little bit of neural drive and go through that three or five rounds. And that takes like 10 minutes. Okay. So you're saying that the rolling out is really just like a trigger point? Yeah. So a lot of uh, the research and thoughts are going uh, in a way that when we roll out, we're really not changing the anatomy. Okay. We're changing how much the muscles are contracted. Mm-hmm. So that we're actually just getting them to relax more or less. And maybe we're changing some elastic properties, but that's very, that's pretty temporary. Most people have had the experience. They roll out, they get a huge increase in range of motion immediately. And then the next day they're tight again in the same way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, how many people have ever had that experience? And then they roll it out the next day, and then they roll it out the next day, and then they need a firmer foam roller, and then they need a firmer foam roller, and one they need one with the, the nubs on it to create more and more and more stimulation. So there's two sort of ideas that are happening with that. Have you ever had that experience where you have to get a harder and harder foam roller? Sure. So there's two there's two things that you could consider. Number one, you need a harder and harder foam roller because foam rolling is making you stiffer. So you need something stronger. That's theory one. Theory number two is um, what we're really doing when we roll out is we are presenting a stimulus that makes the muscles relax underneath where you're rolling. And you need more and more and more stimulus over time to create that response because you're sort of wearing it out. Sort of like, you know, back in the day when everyone took NO Explode. Yeah. And just got super pumped up. Like you had to go work out or you were going to explode. <laughs> and it literally explode. I didn't mean to make that sort of pun. But you start with one scoop and the world is the most amazing place. when you, <laughs> you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You, just, you could not be more pumped up. Then by the end of the, ju- the jar, you're taking three scoops. And you don't even feel anything. You're just getting used to it. I think when we have to go from a harder to a harder and harder and harder foam roller, you're just getting used to it, so you need more to make the change that's happening. And if that's not the case, then the other alternative is that you're making yourself stiffer by rolling out, which is why you need something more aggressive. I mean, what, those are sort of the two explanations. Okay. You're either making yourself stiffer or you need more stimulus. <laughs> Neither one sound very good. You're right. Yeah. So there's uh, there's a lot of talk about what's called a novel stimulus. When something's novel, it has a larger effect on the nervous system. So, like, if you do, you know, like the metal tools, people are using the metal tools to scrape, like, Graston or hot grips, those types of things. Mm-hmm. That's a very novel stimulus for people, and it can create a uh, large change in their range of motion. One of my mentors told me, Ryan, you should try doing soft tissue on people, soft tissue work, um, as light as possible. Do it as light as possible rather than as hard as possible. And so I started doing that, and the, the changes are almost the same in terms of how much range of motion they get, like within two minutes of doing it. So it makes me question the underlying theory of what we're doing. 
So in the chiropractic world, then, uh, is this why you see people jumping from chiropractor to chiropractor because that novelty effect is really what's fixing them? That's a great question. I think you know, different chiropractors practice differently. Some people will do like ART. Some people will do um, like the metal tools, the Graston type stuff. Some people will do like I, I do uh, a technique called cupping quite a bit where I just use these little um, silicone cups and glide it around the skin as they move through ranges of motion because that's very not – I mean, <laughs> how often do you have cups attached to your body and you glide them around your skin? Probably not very often. Saturday night, that's it. <laughs> Every Saturday for the last 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, I don't know why they jump around. And then there's different manipulation techniques. Or diff- there's different ways that people get adjusted. There's yeah. some, you know, I'm sure some of my patients go somewhere else and other people's patients come to me because it's just a better fit person personality wise too. Um, so there could be a lot of different reasons why that is, but certainly people who've had a lot of, say they've been to a previous provider and they've had a lot of grass or the, the the metal tool work done. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else. Even if it's the similar sort of mechanism, I want it to be a different experience because that may open up the window of opportunity to uh, help them. Now I think about soft tissue treatment as doing a couple things. Number one, decreasing the tone or the contraction of the muscle. Number two, it may make the, just the pain stop. And maybe they just need the pain to stop for a little while and break the cycle of pain. If I'm doing it to decrease the tension in a muscle, that's not the end. That's the means to the end. The means to the end would be now that that muscle tension is gone, can I strengthen the area? Can I teach you how to move it differently? Um, that's sort of what I'm thinking of versus I'm doing the soft tissue treatment to break up this scar tissue that I have no proof of existing just because it hurts there. Uh, I'm kind of a cynical person. Have you noticed that? <laughs> that's okay, man. I, I was just it's a gonna, blessing and a curse. I just can't help it. I think it's at least 60% blessing. Um, <laughs> Charles Daly used to say that he could get better results for anybody just by looking at what they were currently doing and doing the opposite, right? And so maybe that... <laughs> That's... Addition by subtraction. Yeah, right. I tell a lot okay. of people, just stop doing that for a little bit, mm-hmm. and let's see what happens. Okay. Say something is aggravated, and what the natural human tendency is to stretch it or to do something to it. Yeah. What if it? So what if it was a scab? You know, what if you had a cut on your arm, and every time it felt weird to you, which you're just feeling tension in the scab, you you tried to stretch it harder, or you tried to roll on it. Maybe the scab just needs to heal. Right. Like, say for example, you had a paper cut on the back of your finger. This is, this is a very classic example here. You had a paper cut on the back of your finger and it scabbed over on the knuckle. It was right on the knuckle. And every time you try to bend your finger, you go, Oh, that feels tight. I need to stretch the hell out of it. <laughs> well, because it's on the skin, you can see it and that would be a bad idea. But I think a lot of times that happens at sort of a low level. Um, not that people have these huge scabs inside their body, but the same idea. They keep picking at their scab. And they never actually just rest it and let it recover because we want such an instant improvement that we, you know, we don't think, well, maybe it just needs to actually like get better for a week or two or three, depending on what it is. Hmm. But in the same, when you can see it, it's much more obvious. Like, okay, obviously you wouldn't want to pick the scab. So yeah, addition by subtraction, right? Or change what you're doing and, and, uh, stop stressing the thing that needs just to be relaxed or have uh, some recovery. So, you know, with that in mind, a few minutes ago, you mentioned uh, muscle tone. You were talking mm-hmm. about muscle tension. Can you just kind of define what muscle tone really is? Because I'm, I'm sure there are some listeners who don't know. 
So, yeah, if you put someone under general, general anesthesia, all of their muscle tone would be gone, right? They're just flopping on the table. Yeah. Muscle tone would be how much a muscle sort of contracted at rest. So if you did a bicep curl, you'd have to increase the tone to lift the weight. Can I say bicep curl on the show? You sure can, yeah. Okay, good. One all time. Right, One time. That's One it. time. Say you were doing a squat, you have to have a certain amount of tone. How much, you know, how hard is the muscle contracting? Some people are very high-toned people, meaning they just hold so much muscle tension all the time. And by muscle tension, it means how many of the little units are contracted, essentially. When someone goes under anesthesia, all the muscle relaxes. When you try to do a max effort, all the muscle contracts. When you're sitting there right now, there is probably a certain amount of tension or tone in your traps to hold, you know, when you kind of, the way you hold yourself. So when you roll on something, there's a reflex where you stimulate the nerve endings in the skin and the fascia or the connective tissue. It relays to the brain and spinal cord, and then it sends a message back to make the muscles relax a little bit. So it decreases the the neural drive, and then you get a large increase in range of motion. Does that also decrease uh, inhibition? Sure. Well, I think it would be it would sort of, that would be sort of inhibiting. Like by rolling out, you're sort of inhibiting the drive. Okay. Okay. So, uh, you know, back to muscle tone here. Is there an optimal level of muscle tone? Um, so let's say that I did 150 wall balls yesterday. I didn't care. My tonal quality is going to be higher, right, today? Um, I don't know that your tone would be increased. You'd probably just feel some soreness. That's but I don't know that you'd have... Okay. So what could I do to increase tone then? So let's say that I want bodybuilding. Bodybuilding, okay. Bodybuilding is the most. Those people drive so much tone because the more resting tone you have, like yeah. the buffer you look, because the muscle is more contracted. Think about flexing as hard as you can. You look more muscular than if you're not flexing. Right. So in bodybuilding, the idea is to squeeze the muscles as hard as you can because you're, you're essentially driving tone into them. Mm-hmm. And then if people do bodybuilding for a long time, they have a lot of tone because they've trained themselves to be that way. And so when they try to do something that uh, requires them to go like overhead, it's very challenging because they've driven so much tone into their lats and their pecs and all that, as well as probably developing some stiffness in the muscle and maybe surrounding connective tissue as well. But yeah, if someone wants to drive tone, then they need to do some really maximal or um, the rep range. Well, I mean, the rep range could probably vary, but things where they're really trying to generate tension in the muscles as hard as they can. That would be an increased tone. So uh, Charlie Francis used to say that he would want Ben Johnson, his best sprinter, to do like a maximal squat the day before a world championship race or even hours before. Um, so how how would you say that you would increase tone better by bodybuilding than by powerlifting? Is there a difference? Well, I think, um, uh, sorry, I was thinking more long-term. If you're thinking the example that you just mentioned, that's that's yeah. ne- some neural preparation, I would think. Like when you go under something heavy, you know when you're going to do like an open event and say they have squat cleans, do heavier and the lighter one and the other ones feel lighter. Okay. Same idea. You're sort of neurally prepping yourself for the demand. So perhaps when they were doing that, you know, do the squat because it teaches you how to drive maximal per, you know, percentage, that can uh, allow you to go harder in the race because you've driven more um, contraction. Maybe you've recruited more motor, what are called motor units when you do that. Okay. Um, I'm thinking sort of long-term tone. That's sorry. That's what I was thinking. If you were going to go do something like powerlifting, of course you're going to 
you know, I would be laughed at if I said that wasn't going to create more muscle tone. So that's, that's definitely not what I'm saying. Uh, I was just thinking that, uh, bodybuilders have a lot of tone because they train like mind body connection. If I'm going to squeeze these muscles as hard as I can, which is really driving the level of contraction and the stimulus from the way the rep range they use is that they get uh, hypertrophy. Now in powerlifting, obviously they're going to drive tons of neural drive. They're going to recruit their muscles like crazy. I mean, I think that uh, powerlifters probably have the highest level of uh, recruitment of muscle fibers. So, yeah, uh, and that's one of the explanations why people get strong so fast when they're untrained is that they're not actually changing the muscle fiber. They're changing how much, how much of their muscles they recruit. Okay. So, so that would sort of prep them. If someone wanted more muscle mass and sort of more resting tone, I think that bodybuilding is, people really get that quite a bit because they have that, that connection that they've built by trying to squeeze their bicep as hard as you can. I don't know any powerlifters that are trying to squeeze their pec as hard as they can when they're benched. They're thinking more task oriented. Do you know what I mean? Sure. So could that be limiting long term? I mean, if I've got a former bodybuilder in here who's been working out that way for 20 years and yeah. uh, we're going to be learning a snatch today, could that <laughs> limit his, his overhead mobility? Right, exactly. And part of that too is because of driving the tone, that athlete may not know how to relax overhead. Okay. And in power, in, uh, in Olympic lifting, the art, one of the arts of Olympic lifting is creating, you know, tension and then relaxing and then creating tension so that you can be quick. And if someone has been training in a way where it's all about creating tension through the full range of motion, then they will probably not be able to be quick because they can't relax their arm from being down at their waist to suddenly being overhead. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. yeah and so right. that that is something that you'll see in um, bodybuilders is they don't know how to relax quickly. And in a lot of sports, the thing that makes people great is their ability to relax and contract quickly and go between the two. And so if someone trains themselves only to create tension and never how to relax and generate tension quickly, then, yeah, when you start thinking about uh, other movements, that could be very limiting. So how would I assess that? Say that I have a new person coming in and um, they've got a history of exercise. You know, what are some, some little tests that I can do if there are any? Well, I've never really thought about if there's a test for that or not. I would just watch them. And if, if, it, if it looks like they're not relaxing, that would tell me what I need to know, I think. Okay. Uh, I don't know that there's really a specific test. And then what I'd have to teach them to do is how do they let – how do they learn to relax – through the range of motion. So I wouldn't even have, I mean, you could have that person do a bunch of stretching, but if their issue is they don't know how to relax as they go up overhead, stretching them really hard isn't getting sort of at the root of what I'm trying to do. Because in that case, you're trying to stretch and pull on the muscle, and I'm trying to teach them how to make the muscle relax as they reach up overhead. And so maybe you have to do both. Maybe you have to roll them out to decrease the tension by rolling. And then once that tension is gone, you can show them how to move their arm in a relaxed way overhead. And then that's going to take a long time to help, you know, rewire, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to be like a one, you're going to do it one time and suddenly it's going to be this easy thing. It's probably going to take some training. Um, but that's, that's how I would think about it. Okay. So, I mean, obviously we want to keep these clients around for 10 or 15 years anyway, but Exactly. Are there any quick tests that you could do at intake that you recommend that uh, we trainers adopt? 
Well, so the way that I've structured the the workshop that I teach is specifically aimed at that. So I have four core modules that I that I look at. I I, I take people through a way to do um, assess breathing and bracing because I think that uh, we clearly co- you know clearly in gyms that's something that can be coached. And if you could take someone through a little process to see do you know can they do the fundamental pieces easily, that would be very helpful. I do it. Uh, another module on um, deadlifting, picking things up off the floor, and how to do. And for each of these things, I do what's called a qualifying test, meaning I'm not going to do all these fancy tests unless I think I need to do them. Okay. So if I can if I can qualify someone to do a deadlift, I'm not going to make them do all sorts of you know stretching and things before I let them actually train. So if I can qualify them to lift a bar off the ground with Olympic sized plates then I'll do that. If, if I have to raise the plates two inches and then they can qualify, then I'd have them train with it raised. And then on the side track, I'd have them doing things to be able to lift it off the floor safely. Okay. And then uh, if they can't do, if they can't do it from the floor, there's a couple components we could look at. We could look at sort of their hip mobility and hamstring, you know, sort of the posterior chain flexibility. Uh, and we could look at their motor control on uh, through their hip to see if that's the issue. Like they just don't know how to do it really. <clears throat> I like the that idea. would help. Uh-huh. I was going to say, I like the idea of the qualifying test because whenever I've tried to implement things like functional movement screen into my intake process, it always feels like I'm looking for problems with the client. And I think uh, no client wants to be told the first day you're bad at this, right? Yeah. Um, I don't, I think the FMS is good. Yeah. But I think it has, to, uh, it really depends on what you're trying to do with somebody. If, if somebody just wants to go lift weights and, and you have to ask the question yourself, the question of does, is it going to start sort of, like you said, it's going to make them feel bad or uh, if their goal is just to start working out. I mean, it could be very good information from the FMS. That's just, uh, that's just not how I, I teach it. I teach the qualifying test for the lifts uh, because if somebody can fundamentally do it, then, I want them to be able to do it. And then if you want to do some more investigative work, then perhaps, um, you, you know, you could go through the FMS, you could go through other things and that may be a way uh, to do it. But if, if time is very limited and the focus is just on the lifts, then uh, I would look at their deadlift. I would look at their squat. And for the squat, I do the same thing where there's sort of a qualifying test. There's, I believe six sort of uh, component tests that are done if there's an issue with the squat so we can figure out what to give the athlete. And then I do the same thing for overhead lifting. There's a qualifying test. And, um, and then there's some follow-up tests. Now, I don't want people to misinterpret that. I, I'm, I don't think the FMS is valuable. I think it is. Um, but I think when I'm dealing with people who are doing squatting, deadlifting, and overhead lifting, um, I, I want to watch how they execute the lift and investigate more deeply, um, if needed. Okay. Is that assessment beyond the scope of most CrossFit trainers? Who, who should be doing this stuff? What I just described? Yeah. I think people could, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. Stuff, I think. I don't, okay. we're not assessing for pain. We're not assessing for, if, so, if someone has pain, they should get evaluated, I think. Um, this is just a way to have people go through a couple little things, like doing a, um, a, uh, for example, one of the, the way that I look at qualifying the deadlift would be, okay, put someone in a cat cow position, you know, like the all fours thing where you round and extend your back. Yeah. And then uh, take a dowel and put it on their back. And look at sort of how the dowel lies on their back. Because you just took out all the, the tension in their legs by putting them here. Okay. And sort of gravity. Then have them go set up on their deadlift. And then re- and then compare how does the dowel lay on their back for, in the deadlift versus how did it lay on their back in the cat-cow 
And if we find quote unquote neutral in the cat cow, and then it looks different when they're in their deadlift from on the ground, then I know that they're not lifting in sort of neutral. And when we're doing heavy lifting, we, you know, neutral would be the, the quote unquote safest place to be. And so it allows me to quickly see, are they close to that or not? And so, you know, I think anybody could do that. And then, and then you could do a couple of follow up, you know, easy follow up tests to that. But none of it's super, um, complicated. And certainly when somebody's first exposed to this type of thing, it can be a comp, it can be a uh, sort of mental exercise to think about how you would break these things out. But, uh, I don't, I, you're only going to help people by doing this. I don't think it would be harmed by doing it. Similar to how the FMS, you know, anybody could do the FMS. That's the, that's the way it's designed. And, um, I don't think it's bad to give people recommendations based on what you find. I mean, if you're going to have them lifting heavy deadlifts, I think that it's pretty okay to tell them they can do these stretches too. Okay. <laughs> as long as the goal isn't to reduce pain. Um, right. um, because pain could be anything. Pain could be a bone tumor. I mean, so you just don't know, and that's why it should get evaluated. But if someone has a hard time in their deadlift, and then you can see that uh, you could help them by having them do a couple easy drills, I would absolutely want somebody doing that. Absolutely. So what do you teach in the Move and Fix seminar? Yeah, so the first um, hour and a half is some some background material. So we, we discuss um, the sort of movement theory using what's called the joint-by-joint joint approach, which is uh, kind of comes from uh, – well, it doesn't kind of come from – it comes from Mike Boyle and, and Greg Cook, and I, and I expand on my ideas on it and how it relates to what we typically do in a CrossFit setting. And then I talk about uh, the concept of relative stiffness, which I think is a very underappreciated concept. Mm -hmm. Then we discuss uh, what rolling it, rolling out on a foam roller, or lacrosse ball or tennis ball or whatever it is and what it does and, and how we could be, be using it. Then we look at the four core modules. The four core modules would be uh, the breathing and bracing that I take people through. The deadlifting, over, uh, squatting and overhead lifting. Now each one of those core modules has little mini assessments built in and based on those mini assessments, it will tell you what the target drill that you could use with that athlete is. So say for squatting, for each step of the, if someone has a hard time with squatting, for each step throughout the follow-up tests, there's target drills, what you could be doing to help that person. And it's very specific because if someone has an ankle, uh, range of motion issue. You don't want to be stretching their hip. You want to be working on their ankle. If someone has a hip thing, it doesn't, and they have a ton of ankle range of motion, you don't want to be spending time with them on their ankle range of motion. So it helps you identify these things. Um, and the overhead lifting section, uh, there's a lot of very, very valuable things in the overhead lifting section. If I think that's, I think they're all good sections, but I think the overhead lifting section is the best section. And um, same idea. There's, there's, I believe, 28 total target drills that people will leave with from the workshop in terms of uh, drills they can use with people. And then at the, the very end, we talk a little bit about low back injuries and some considerations for um, for certain exercises that are done where the low back repetitively um, bends. Oh, wow, it's excellent. Like, like, so that's the structure of the, uh, that's the structure of the workshop. It's gone through a, <laughs> you know, I look back to that first one I told you about that I did. Mm -hmm. And man, it's come a long way. <laughs> I bet. It has come, a, it's, uh, the way it's transformed, uh, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's come a long way. A lot of iterations. I change it every single time I do it. Cause I, there's always a little bit better way to do something. There's always a little bit. So it's gone through 60 iterations. Uh, wow. so I think that, uh, 
it provides people a lot of stuff they haven't seen before because it brings things from many different worlds, like uh, the world of uh, functional movement, for example. That inspired me a lot, and I give them due credit for it. The world of uh, what's called DNS, or dynamic neuromuscular stabilization, which is which comes out of Prague. That has greatly influenced me. Um, stuff from a guy, Mike Reinold, who is a shoulder guy, shoulder physical therapist guy. Well, he would say I pigeonhole him by calling him a shoulder guy, but he worked for the Boston Red Sox. He's uh, a world-renowned shoulder uh, expert, and uh, so his stuff has inspired me in how you would incorporate that into the setting. So a lot of people have it. And then McGill, of course, and his sure. low back and hip stuff. So all of these things I've tried to bring together in a way that's very usable for trainers and athletes. I have a lot of athletes that come take the course too. It's not just trainers. And there's a lot of healthcare providers that come. I get a lot of physical therapists and chiropractors who come too because I think it's useful and people will get out of it uh, what they need to get out of it based on their level of experience and uh, background education and that type of thing. So I, so people will take away different things. But uh, yeah, that's sort of that's sort of how it's structured as of today. <laughs> okay. And when are the next seminars that are coming out? Well, I'm going to Chicago this weekend. CrossFit and then, hmm? Yep, CrossFit Illumin, that's yeah. right. And uh, and then I think there's 20 more on the schedule throughout the rest of the year. Amazing. And I just scheduled London. Good for you, So I'm, I'm so excited for to, to go overseas for it. That's uh, fantastic. So I never thought I'd be doing that. So it's it's been fun to see. So fantastic. London will be in December. That's uh, But there's many, many other locations that are coming out throughout 2016, and, and I'll probably be scheduling for 2017 here soon. And those can be found at my website, uh, which is just themovementfix.com, um, and there's uh, many things for workshops, and it has them all listed there as well if the listeners want to find those. And we're always looking for great new hosts in, in cities. So I'm, if anybody's interested in hosting, we're certainly open to that. I'm sure you're going to get slammed with emails right after this podcast. Uh, Ryan, I'm going to leave it there, man. Thanks so much for being a guest on Two Brain Radio. And uh, I'm sure you're going to hear a lot from us in the future as well as our listeners. Awesome. Well, it was, it was a pleasure uh, being on here. You, the, the questions you asked were very, very good and I think uh, are uh, things that will really help people. So thanks, thanks to you. thank you for uh, putting the questions together like that. It's time for Critical Questions. Got a question for Chris? Email chris at twobrainbusiness.com. Here's our most critical question this week. Every second week on this podcast, I answer critical questions. And if you have a question, you can just email chris at twobrainbusiness.com and I'll try and get to it within the next couple of episodes. This time, though, I'm going to turn the question on its head and I'm going to give you the number one question you can be asking about your clients, you can be asking of your staff, and you can be asking of yourself to improve your coaching business. This is a question that came up several times over the seminar in Charlotte last weekend, which is also why my voice is kind of gruff today. And it's one that I want to share with you because it helps with uh, introspection about where your business is going. It helps you create the best possible meaningful career opportunity for your coaches and also the best possible long-term experience for your members. So that question is, what do you want now? And in the book, Help First, I started with the question that every good marketer asks themselves, what do people want? It's one of the hardest questions to answer until you really know your audience. And this is what Help First was was written to do, is help you identify the needs of your audience and help you uh, propose how to help them solve their problems. But when we were at the seminar in Charlotte, the question that kept coming up is, how do I help my staff more? 
How do I help my clients stick around longer? How do I turn my business into something that's viable and it's going to stand up for the long term for myself and my family? And the question that I kept coming back to was, what do you want now? So starting with yourself, many of you have read about the perfect day exercise. You know, I've been writing about that for about six years now. In the perfect day exercise, you're asking yourself, in a perfect world, what would my day look like? And it's a visualization exercise, but it also establishes a point B for us to work backward from in our mentoring program. With your staff, it's really important to ask yourself, what do they want? So instead of what do we want for them, what does the staff person actually want? Do they want to work for you full time? And if so, are they going to be working for you as a coach? Or will they be doing personal training? Or will they be coaching only one element of fitness all the time? The other thing that you need to be asking them is, has that changed? So instead of just saying, hey, what do you want, and then spending the next three years working toward providing that goal for them, only to find out that their target has shifted, it's really important to be asking your staff, what do you want now all the time? This weekend in Charlotte, I talked about Elliot Jacques' uh, levels of thinkers quite a bit, and we related a lot of problems and solutions back to the way people think. People are happiest when they are at the level of thought that challenges them a little bit, but not too much. And that's going to be different for everyone. For example, some of my staff are happy cleaning. They like the mindlessness of it. They like having a checklist and following it the exact same way every time, punching out at 9.30 and going home, and that's it. They don't have to think about their job after they leave the gym. Some staff like to have a little bit of choice. They like to have a little bit more decision-making power or some control. So they're more level two thinkers. They like to be told, if this happens, then do this. And this is why I call it a binary decision-making process. They're a binary thinker, a level two. Level three would be more uh, identifying a problem and then choosing a solution based on a preset set of template. So for example, uh, doing squat therapy with somebody, we see their knees caving in. And we, you know, think in our brain, what is my repertoire of solutions for knees caving in? And maybe we choose from one of six choices, you know, depending on what our favorite is and what the last one we heard was. Level four is really the entrepreneurial level. So this is where the person starts uh, projecting, you know, what's the next problem that's going to come up and how can I solve that before it happens? What's the next opportunity and how do I overcome the problems uh, that are in the way of me reaching that opportunity? A lot of staff, a lot of people in general, believe in this romantic ideal of entrepreneurialism, which is, yeah, I can stay awake all night and I can you know, stress over this. And in the end, it's going to be all worth it and I'll be a millionaire. But when a lot of people are actually given that opportunity, they'll you know, revert back to a level three uh, stage of thinking. They want systems that they can just press buttons or you know, fill in the blanks or paint by numbers. In the real entrepreneurialism world, that doesn't exist. But sometimes... People need to get really good at level three before they can move to level four. And so in our ramp up program, we do teach some more black and white ideals, do things specifically this way. Later on, as people move on in mentoring, they learn that everything's really a shade of gray and that different solutions are going to work for different boxes, but not every box, yada, yada. So when we're asking ourselves, what do my staff want? The question that we have to really be thinking about is what do they want now? Have we given them a taste of entrepreneurialism and they didn't like it? Have we uh, not challenged them enough? Are they bored? Are they going to be looking for something else? Can they make a living at what they're currently doing? If not, what should they be doing instead? With our clients, 
It's important to always be asking, what do you want now? Because we attract them based on this ideal of novelty. You know, people come and do CrossFit because it's unlike anything else. Most of my clients have tried other things before and they might have liked it. They might not have. It might have been effective. Maybe not. But what's important is that it's a different workout every day. And some of us who have been doing this for a while forget that. So when I asked, you know, 32 gym owners in Charlotte, how many people are still doing CrossFit the same way they did it on their first day? Only about three hands went up. I started off doing CrossFit.com. I don't do that anymore. You know, I focus on Olympic lifting and I'm going slightly back to powerlifting. And in this episode, Dr. Ryan DeBell talks about using bodybuilding. It's important to continually be asking the client, what do you want now? So that we're providing that novelty that we promised them in the first place. So this might take the form of specialty programs. It might take the form of reassessment. It's probably going to take the form of constant reminders of achievement. We are not wired to pursue one single goal focused and relentlessly forever. That's just not how our species is wired. What we're focused to do is to pay attention to threats, to look for new opportunities all the time, to harvest the opportunities that are within our reach, and also to celebrate success. This is something that we've been doing now forever. So when we do bright spots, we call people every time they hit a PR, and we don't always you know, talk about their previous workout goals. Instead, what we do is celebrate their little successes. It's more important for somebody to have frequent successes, even if it's not a goal that they've identified, than it is for them to constantly be pursuing one goal. It's true that very high-level athletes have conditioned themselves to the pursuit of one goal. These are not generally our clients. And high-level CrossFit athletes even are not focused on one goal. They're not going to just deadlift 700 pounds because that's not going to win them the games. This is why CrossFit is so attractive. This is why specialty groups are so attractive to my veteran members. This is why constant reassessment and celebration of bright spots is so critical. What it comes back to again is the question, what do you want now? And if you're constantly asking yourself that, that's going to change the way that you deliver your service. If you constantly ask your coaches that, it's going to change the way that you put your services together to make a viable career for them. And if you ask your clients that, you're going to make everybody happy and make your job a lot easier. Have a great week.